Well, if you have your Bibles with you once more, I invite you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 24. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1054. We're continuing our study in the Gospel of Matthew. We've come to the key passage in the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24 and 25. And we're going to begin reading in verse 32. And I'll speak for a few minutes on this subject, the lesson of the fig tree. In Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 32. And this is what the Word of God says. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The theme of Christ's second coming permeates the New Testament. It's the great anticipation and reality of Christian living. In fact, one out of every 30 Bible verses mentions the return of Christ or the end of time. Of the 216 chapters in the New Testament... There are more than 300 references to the second coming. Many of the Old Testament saints, including all of the prophets, gave major attention in their writings to the Lord's return. And Jesus, while he was on earth, spoke often in very pointed ways about his return. Those who knew Jesus while he was on earth regularly talked about the second coming in their sermons and in their letters. The Lord's return will be as real and as historical an event as was his first coming. And in that day, Satan will be defeated. The curse will be lifted. Christ will be worshipped. The creation will be liberated and restored. Sin and death will be forever conquered. And the saints will be glorified. And among the many passages in Scripture that describe the Lord's coming again... Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25 is unequaled in its scope because it is the message of Christ's return from Jesus' own lips. After he explained to his disciples the series of signs that would precede his coming, including the supreme sign of his appearance in the air, the disciples were still full of questions. When would these things begin? How long would they last? How long from when he appears to when he will establish his kingdom? And following Jesus' description of his second coming in verses 29 to 31, he tells the parable of the fig tree in verses 32 to 35. And this parable summarizes and illustrates all that Jesus has been teaching. And it acts as a transition in this discourse to what he will share through the remaining parables of Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. So would you notice with me in this lesson of the fig tree, four simple 
truths. Number one, it is a simple picture in verse 32. Jesus said, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Now, there's much misunderstanding about parables and why Jesus used parables in his earthly teaching ministry. And when you study the scriptures, you find that the parables had a twofold purpose in Jesus' teaching. When they were unexplained, they concealed truth. But when Jesus explained them, they revealed truth. And throughout his ministry, when Jesus gave a parable to the multitudes or to the unbelieving religious leaders, often it was without giving them an explanation. It was to conceal the truth from them. It was to riddle them. And when Jesus gave a parable to his disciples and then explained it, it was a vivid illustration that made the truth that he was teaching clear and understandable. And in Matthew chapter 13, probably the uh, greatest chapter of parables in the New Testament, Jesus was asked by his disciples why he spoke in parables. And friends, it wasn't because he was trying to be relevant and use the common themes and objects of the day, though he did do that. Listen carefully to his response to his disciples and why he taught with parables. Matthew 13, verses 10 and 11. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. And then in verses 13 to 15, This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Do you hear in Jesus' words? He taught in parables as a form of judgment on the unbelieving religious leaders and multitudes of his day. And in light of the fact that Jesus' parables were given for the sake of helping the disciples understand his teaching, it is evident here in Matthew chapter 24 that at this crucial point in the text, Jesus would begin to speak in parables and explain them to his disciples to shed further light on his second coming. Now, through his ministry, Jesus used the fig tree repeatedly as an illustration in his teaching. And additionally, Palestine was full of fig trees. They were not only grown in commercial uh, places, but they were also found in many family yards for the sake of their fruit and for the shade they provided during the hot summer months. And so as Jesus points out to the disciples this fig tree, they understood completely the object that he was using to shed light 
on all that he had been teaching them. He takes this simple, common object, and he vividly illustrates for his disciples what he's been teaching about his return and how it can be recognized. Now, this parable of the fig tree, it points back to Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 to 22, where Jesus also pointed out a fig tree. And in that passage, he cursed the fig tree and it withered. And so both in Matthew chapter 21, verses 8 to 22, and here in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus uses the reference of the fig tree to provide a simple picture of judgment. Just as he cursed and the fig tree withered in Matthew chapter 21, judgment was near. And here, as he highlights this fig tree, he is also using it to emphasize that judgment and his return is near. And so you'll notice in verse 32, as he points out this fig tree, he says, learn the lesson from the fig tree. The word learn is the key word to be emphasized in verse 32. And it literally means to general, genuinely understand and accept a teaching. It means to accept it as true and to apply it to your life. Sometimes it's used to describe acquiring a lifelong habit. It means that the type of learning that Jesus is describing here is more than head knowledge. It is a genuine acceptance of a truth. And it is determination to live in light of this truth. And so an example of this idea of learning that Jesus uses is found in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11 with the Apostle Paul. Where he said, I have learned to be content. He didn't just understand the truth of commitment, contentment. He applied and received the truth of contentment in his everyday living. And Jesus wanted his disciples to learn in their innermost being what he was teaching and to understand it and to receive it as of great importance. It's as if Jesus were saying to them and us, we've been talking about the end times and how you can spot its arrival. And you see that fig tree over there in the distance? It's a good illustration of how you'll know when I'm going to return. And notice what he says about the fig tree in verse 32. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. And this is the lesson. This is the lesson in the parable. When you see the sap begin to flow in the branches, making them tender, when you see new leaves appearing upon the tree, you know that summer is near. You know that harvest is just around the corner. And likewise, when you see these signs that I've been describing to you in this prophecy, you know that my return is near. It's close. The word near implies that nothing more needs to happen before God's prophecies and plan of redemption come to full completion. In other words, the blooming of the fig tree is the sign that the long season of Christ's absence is over and that his return is near. 
And what I would say to you this morning, friends, is that if you will look at the fig tree of our day, if you will look at the trend of the world events that we see unfolding before our eyes, does it not look like the sap is beginning to flow in the limbs and new leaves are beginning to blossom on the tree? Does it not confirm to you that what Jesus is teaching in this passage is going to come true? That it's a reality? That history will confirm that Jesus' prophecies in this passage are true? That all of history will perfectly align with Jesus' words in this text? Learn the lesson of the fig tree. It's a simple picture. When you see the tree bloom, when you see the sap flow, when you see these signs taking place, the time is near. And it will be a time of blessed hope for the believer. And it will be a time of unrelenting judgment for the unbeliever. In this parable, we not only see a simple picture, we also see a sobering point in verse 33. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near. He's at the very gates. In this verse, Jesus told his followers and us that all these things that he has talked about in the Olivet Discourse will take place. And the pace of these events will begin to escalate as his return draws near. And we are seeing the evidence of these signs that Jesus has been talking about more and more. The increase in famine, the increase in earthquakes, the increase in diseases, the increase in military escalation. And all of these signs should remind us of Christ's coming. For they are as obvious as the green sprouts of a fig tree. Reminding us that winter is over. And that summer is coming. And that Jesus' return is near. In verse 33, he makes reference to all these things. And with this phrase, he's referring to the events that he predicted in verses 4 to 28. The birth pains of verses 4 to 14. The abomination of desolation in verse 15. The need to flee because of all of these impending perils in verses 16 to 28. And the catastrophic upheaval of the universe in verse 29 at the sign of Christ appearing. And all of these signs will indicate that Jesus' return is near. And notice what he says in verse 33 at the end of it. When you see all of these things, you know that he is near. He's at the very gates. And look at those words carefully, friends. He speaks with certainty. You know. Factual reality. You know that these things are taking place. And he speaks with a sense of urgency. That he is near. That he is at the very gates. Luke, in his parallel account, uses different language at this point in the parable. And instead of saying that Jesus is near, Luke says the kingdom of God is near. And in Luke chapter 21, verse 31, this is what he says. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. 
Now the disciples asked the question in verse 3. What will be the signs of your coming? What will be the end of the age? What will be the signs of the establishing of your kingdom? And Jesus says to them in this passage, when you see all of these signs taking place, you know my appearing is near. You know, as verse 33 says, I am near. You know, as Luke says, my kingdom is near. For Jesus to be near means that his kingdom is near. For he will usher in that kingdom. And the language, don't miss it. It's an urgent sense of language. Jesus is painting in this parable a picture as if he were standing at the door, at the very gates, knocking and saying, my arrival is here. It's near. It's sobering. It's sobering for those who are not ready for the end. It's sobering for those who have failed to recognize Christ and to turn to Him for their salvation and for the forgiveness of their sins and for their hope. It's a sobering reality. He's near. And as I was thinking about this point and the language that Jesus uses here, I was thinking about the reading goals I set for the new year. And the first book I decided to tackle was a book that I've previously read, and I just finished it this morning for the second time before I came to church. It's a little biography on an old pastor named Andrew Bonar. And it's called Keep Your Spiritual Edge, Lessons from Andrew Bonar for Ministers Today. And it's a pointed little biography that talks about how Andrew Bonar, when he was starting out in ministry, was challenged by an older seasoned minister who warned him that most pastors, by the time they get to the end of their ministry, lose the edge on their life that they had when they started in ministry. And that challenge stayed with Bonar through his whole life. And the author of this biography studied his life and he identified factors that were true of Bonar's life that helped him keep his spiritual edge well into his 80s, that he never lost it, that he was as sharp as he was, if not sharper, when he started in ministry. And according to the author, one of the key principles that helped Bonar keep his spiritual edge was the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. And according to the author, the second coming of Christ continually called Bonar to a life of holiness. It gave him urgency in his evangelistic efforts, in his preaching and teaching ministry, and it kept him spiritually alert. He understood the soberness of the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. That it challenged him to continually live a life of holiness. It challenged him to make sure that he never lost his edge in urging people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And it challenged him to always remain spiritually alert. And if you're a believer in Christ this morning, I simply ask you, does the return of Christ do for you what it did to Andrew Bonar? Does it call you this morning to a life of holiness? 
Does it call you this morning to a sense of urgency for the burden of those who don't know Christ? Does it call you this morning to stay spiritually alert and moving forward in your life? There's many quotes in this biography about Bonar and the things that he wrote and said about the second coming of Christ. And I'm going to give you two of the most powerful ones that really apply what Jesus is emphasizing for us here in verse 33. Here's the first one. We do not say that the details of the second coming must thus deeply affect us. What we say is that the event must Or rather, that he who is to come must be so expected and longed for as to affect us powerfully. Did you you catch it? It's not just the doctrine that Christ will come. It's the one who is coming who should affect us so powerfully. That as John says, we will see him as he is powerfully. That should affect us. And here's the second one. He said, think of Christ coming again. This is what sanctifies us, makes us holy. This is what strengthens us. This is what gladdens us. Oh, believer, there's a reason why the Bible calls the second coming of Christ the blessed hope. It is a doctrine of joy. It is a doctrine of Hope, it's a doctrine of gladness, as Bonar would say, for those who know Christ. Does it sober you? Does it give you a sense of certainty and a sense of urgency about your life? Does it help you keep your edge? Well, in this parable, we not only see a simple picture and a sobering point, we also see a secure prophecy in verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. The phrase, this generation, is probably the most important phrase in all of Matthew chapter 24 and all of Matthew chapter 25. And I would say to you, after re-studying these passages, this is probably the most difficult phrase to interpret properly In both of the chapters. It's important to note that good and wise scholars have reached many different conclusions. About this phrase, this generation. It shows you the importance and the depth of it. I'm going to give you the three most popular interpretations this morning. And show you what I think Jesus is saying. First, many people believe that this generation refers to the disciples' generation. That they see Matthew chapter 24 as really describing the fall of Jerusalem by the Romans in A.D. 70. And that the disciples' generation would not pass away until they see all of these things uh, take place. They see it referring to as the disciples' generation would not die out, that Jesus would come back in the disciples' generation. Well, we simply know that's not true because in John chapter 21, when Jesus restored Peter, he told Peter in that restoration that he was going to die for Jesus' sake and name. So we know it can't refer to the disciples' generation. 
The second most popular interpretation is that it refers to the nation of Israel. And that the nation of Israel would not die out before Jesus returned as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And while Israel is God's chosen nation, uh, this passage is not referring to the nation of Israel. So what is this generation referring to? Well, I think in its overall context, when you study it in the overall context of chapter 24 and chapter 25, the conclusion that you must come to is that this generation refers to the generation of people who are alive when all of the signs that Jesus has described in verses 4 to 28 take place. It refers to the generation that is alive during the end times who will view all of these signs. It means that all of the signs that Jesus has described in Matthew 24 and that he'll describe in Matthew 25 will take place in one generation. And while we're seeing the foreshadowing of these events, we have not yet seen the events specifically as Jesus describes in this passage. And this will be the generation that will be alive at the end. And verse 34 is the explanation of the parable of the fig tree. So when you see all of these signs that I've described beginning to take place, you know that my return is near. Just as the sap flows through the limbs and the leaves sprout and summer is near, so these signs will show you that my return is near. In other words, those who observe the beginning of the end times will see the end of the end times. So we see a simple picture. We see a sobering point. We see a secure prophecy. And finally, in verse 35, we see a sure promise. Notice carefully what he says in this verse. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now notice carefully this verse. It consists of two clauses. First, Jesus emphatically says, heaven and earth will pass away. Now he's used this expression before. And the first time it occurs is in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18 on the Sermon on the Mount where it was used as an analogy to express the enduring quality of the Word of God. And in Matthew 5, 18, Jesus said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And just as Jesus used it in that way in Matthew 5.18, he is using it in a similar way in this passage. The phrase heaven and earth can point back to verse 29 and all of the phenomena that will accompany Christ's return. The universe, he says, heaven and earth, it will all pass away. And both the Old Testament and the New Testament teach that the universe will be affected dramatically at Christ's appearing and return and judgment. And then the millennial reign of Christ will take place. And the earth as we know it will cease to exist. Listen to the psalmist 
describe these events in Psalm 102, verses 25 and 26. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. The prophet Isaiah saw a glimpse of this. And in Isaiah chapter 51 and verse 6, he wrote this. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke. And the earth will wear out like a garment. And they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever. And my righteousness will never be dismayed. The Old Testament saw the reality that heaven and earth will pass away. But the New Testament saw that same reality. And Peter reminds us, as permanent and as indestructible as this world may seem to many people, one day it's all going to go up in flames. And in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, this is what Peter wrote. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And do you hear the language? It will be. It will be. It will be. It's certainty. It's as good as if it has already happened, friends. That's how the Bible is speaking of this. John saw a glimpse of what Jesus was referring to in his prophetic vision. And in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1, he described it, a very familiar passage to many of us. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The heavens and the earth will pass away. Now look at the verse. It's a contrast. But. The word but separates the clauses and shows us the contrast. Heaven and earth will pass away. But Jesus' words will not pass away. Friends, what Jesus has been teaching in this passage to his disciples and to us will not fail. It will all come to complete fulfillment. That's why one author said, Jesus' words will never cease to exist, nor prove untrue, nor lose their potency. They will always be there for the church to consult. Oh, just when you think you can't handle another day in this world, open Matthew 24. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This is the reality that you live in, Christian. You live in the certainty of the Word of God. And it should give you confidence and certainty in your faith. Jesus said it this way in Luke 16, 17. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. It's easier for the earth to dissolve than for my word to fail. In John 10, 35, Jesus said that the word of God cannot be broken. 
It is impossible. It is the most certain thing you can build your life on. In Psalm 19.9, David said that the word of God is clean and it endures forever. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55 verses 10 and 11 said, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You can't get any more confident than this word. It is a certain word. It is a sure word. It is a confident word that this world, that our very lives, are in the hands of the one who created it. And all of his word, all of his plan will be fulfilled. This world is going to be destroyed. Christ's words will never be destroyed. There are some who may doubt the end of the world, but Jesus warns, that's foolish. It's going to happen. Just as sure as he came the first time, he will come the second time. He always has. He always will keep his word. It's more permanent than the earth you're walking on this very moment. The earth will stop spinning in its orbit. The sun will cease rising and setting. And Jesus' words will never pass away. They'll never fail. Here's what Spurgeon said about this truth. Christ's promises of pardon are as sure of fulfillment as his prophecies of punishment. No word of his will ever pass away. Just as sure as he promises for those who know him that he's gone to prepare a place for you. And if he's gone to prepare a place for you, he will come again to take you to be with him in that place. Just as certain and sure as that is. It's also certain and sure that he will come again in judgment to those who don't know him. Heaven and earth will pass away, but Jesus' words will never pass away. Oh, learn, learn the lesson of the fig tree. It's hard to put into our words of what that day will be like that Jesus has been describing in verses 29 to 35. Many have tried. Sometimes it's just impossible to comprehend it all. C.S. Lewis, at the end of his series, The Chronicles of Narnia, tried to give a description of what that day would be like. And this is how he ended his series, describing that day. As Aslan spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all of the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. 
all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Heaven and earth will pass away. But Jesus' words will never pass away. Do you know him, friend? If you were to die today, do you know that you would be in heaven with Christ? Could you answer that question this morning? If you were to breathe your last breath on earth today, would you be in heaven? And if you say, yes, pastor, I think I would be, then here's my second question for you. If God were to ask you why you should be led into heaven, what would you say? Would you say, it's because you're a good person? That the good in your life outweighed the bad? That you tried to do the right things? What would your answer be? Listen to me, friends. Your answer to that question really settles where you are in your relationship with Christ. Because there's only one reason that anyone can be in heaven. And there's only one name by which anyone can be in heaven. And that's the name of Jesus. And if you answer that question by talking about what you've done or what you haven't done, you're answering the question saying that going to heaven depends on you. When the Bible says that going to heaven depends upon Jesus. Do you know him? Do you know what it means to have your sins forgiven? Do you know what it means to have hope that when you die, you will be in his presence forever? Oh, friend, if you don't know Christ today, would you cry out to him in this moment, even right where you're seated, And ask him to save you and forgive you of your sins. And for those of you who do know Christ. Would the doctrine of his return. Challenge you and shape your life. So you wouldn't lose your edge. Learn the lesson of the fig tree. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for loving us so much that you give us and tell us the truth. And I pray today that the truth of your word would work deep into our lives and shape and form and fashion and change us to be a people who are alert focused and disciplined the people who are growing in love and devotion to you 
And I pray today, God, for those who don't know you, that through your spirit and through your word, you would draw them to yourself this very hour. They would come to know Christ as their Savior. We thank you for this time of worship and sitting under your word today. And thank you for being able to start our new year in this way. And we pray that you would use it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.